You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. As we've been walking through the Gospel of John, as is our custom, we've made it through the first 12 chapters, and we've come to a screeching halt, where for the rest of the book, like many of the other Gospels, a large amount of time and energy will be devoted to the last week of the life of Jesus. So beginning this last week, we have entered into the last week of Jesus. This picture of the ministry and the sign of Je- signs of Jesus have been displayed for the first several chapters. And starting next week, we'll see the glory of Jesus on display. After these signs have been made visible, we see him set his sights on the cross. So we find ourselves in chapter 12, the first day of this last week in the life of Jesus. In fact, 13 through 19 will be devoted to one day, but we begin to talk about this last week in the life of Jesus. The stage has been set as John has been introducing us to people who don't quite get Jesus. So that I hope that for many of you in the room, if you're a skeptic, if you've got questions about Jesus, well, John is inviting you to bring all those questions, bring all that skepticism, bring all the, bring all the difficult things that you have, bring them to the table and, and let Jesus begin to speak into them. So I want to begin reading, overlapping where we were last week, spending most of our time on verse 37 all the way to the end of the chapter, but we'll begin reading in verse 27 all the way through the 50th verse. Beginning in verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from earth, from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Lost my spot. Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even even of the authorities, 
Many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in Me believes not in Me, but in Him who sent Me. And whoever sees Me sees Him who sent Me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in Me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears My words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. As we come to the beginning of this last week of the life of Jesus where He sets His sights on the cross, many of you might ask, especially if you're new to this picture of what Jesus is, if maybe you would even be in this room and wouldn't call yourself a believer, I'm so grateful that you're here. And in many, and in many ways, you're the reason I'm here. I'm only here because you're here. I hope that you feel welcome here. I hope that you know we are glad that you're here. And so you may have questions like many others. Why is it that Jesus even had to die? Why is it so important that, it had, that Jesus had to die? What's this thing that Christians are clamoring about in the death of Jesus? And so as last week we began this trek towards that very thing, the death of Jesus, many things are now happening we see in this hour. This hour, this moment that has been set aside for Jesus to be raised up, lifted up in an ironic fashion. Not, not just lifted up to receive the glory that the Lord means to give Him, but lifted up in a way that most people would see as a curse. Lifted up, hung on a cross. And there's a significance. Did you see the nowness, the completion of what Jesus would be bringing about in this moment, this hour? He came for this hour. You saw the agony. So, I'm troubled we sang about this in just, just a moment ago. Like I'm troubled. Should I pray for God to deliver me from this hour? No. It is for this purpose that I even came to this hour. Well, what is this hour, you might ask? This hour of glory, of being raised up, but in a, a way that we saw last week that this glory of being raised up will actually be the glory of like a seed dying and being buried so that it might become more fruitful. We see that now is the time for judgment in the world. This hour that has come brings about the prince of the world being driven out. This hour is Jesus being lifted up in a way that everyone would see and no one would be able to ignore. But also we see in this hour a beginning of something, evidently for the rest of the chapter, that will be coming to pass until Jesus returns. At the beginning of the chapter, He comes on the foal of a donkey, as a, a fulfillment of prophecy, but a preview of the fulfillment that Jesus will come back on a war horse with a mark on his thigh, blood from the enemies he's slain. King of kings, Lord of lords. The nowness are also the events that have been 
set into motion. The judgment of the world, the destruction of the enemy, the exaltation of the Son of Man, the drawing of men and women from the ends of the earth to God's grace. They're all reserved for the end times. But the end times have begun now, Jesus says. In this hour, all that is coming to pass has begun. It's not that there's nothing left when he says now is the hour. It's not that there's nothing reserved for this return and consummation. But instead, the decisive step towards this end has been taken in the exaltation of Jesus. Last week we saw the glory of God in Jesus as not just a thing that happens in this chapter, but really happens throughout the entirety of the Bible. God is glorified in salvation through judgment. In this chapter you see the people who deserve judgment, and yet, evidently, Jesus says, I didn't come to judge the world. What? I, became to, I came to save the world. And even though they deserved judgment for what they had done, they received salvation. And that's the glory that God means to bring to himself. God receives glory through honor amidst opposition. A great sacrifice, sacrifice made by Mary and a great sacrifice made by many who welcome Jesus as we celebrate on Palm Sunday. So we're going to unpack the last half of this we saw last week. When we see the weight of God in Jesus, we worship in the face of misunderstanding and even opposition. And then we look to him and his death and his resurrection in order to share his glory. Did you catch that? We become sons of light. Jesus is the light, and yet he adopts us into that light. And there's a glory that we begin to share as verse 50 concludes that is eternal life. There is more than this life has to offer. And that deep sense of discontentment that you have, the, the deep questions that you ask yourself when no one else is around, is this all there is? Is this all I'm here for? Is this all there is for me? What does Jesus say in verse 50? Oh no. Oh no. There's something more eternal. Something amazing. See, God receives glory through softening of hearts and beholding the light of Jesus. We saw the glory of God in worship and the death and resurrection of Jesus being prophesied last week, but this week we see the glory of God in the hardening and the softening of people. The glory of God in publicly confessing Jesus in spite of desiring the glory of men. And we see the glory in the eternality of the words of Jesus. He obeys these words. Did you hear what he said? He shares these words so that we begin to see what it looks like. He says, I'll show you how. I only do and say what the Father says. So last week, the glory of God, we saw in the picture of Jesus, like us, hating his life, taking up something greater, greater becoming a seed, and then thereby becoming fruitful. And there's a promise that we will receive in that glory, the honor of the Father. A glory in opposition. But what we see this week is the glory in opposition even the opposition of unbelief. Unbelief. So in the first few verses, 37 through 43, we see the prediction of the Old Testament. The prophet Isaiah is quoted. Did you catch that in verse 38 and verse 40? A, a prophecy so that we would know that what's happening is simply God's plan coming to pass. God isn't freaked out by what's about to happen to Jesus. The, the rejection of the Jews of their Messiah, that is Jesus, 
is being brought into scriptural context. So we'll understand why this is even happening. And then beginning in verse 44 all the way to the end of the chapter, we see this summary, a, a grandstand, if you will, of Jesus' message. We see the authority of his message, but we also, I don't know if you caught that, you see a threat. And so here's the thing. As we walk through the Bible, we saw this in the book of Acts, we see our desire to, to begin to proclaim and declare the whole counsel of God, something amazing happens. We come upon texts, difficult things like this, that we probably would rather skip over, or we'll go to great lengths to find some sort of philosophical structure to begin to explain them away so that they aren't really what they say they are. And so I've got to get, to, I get you to see something here. I've got to get you to see that to honor Jesus is to receive a gift from God. That to see Jesus rightly is purely to receive a gift from God. It's not something you can do, but it's something only God can give you. And so here, here's what I have to get. This is what it means. I have to get you to see that you are not smart enough. You're not bright enough. You're not good enough to see Jesus on your own. I know, right? Yeah, yay. Groundhog Day. You've lied to me. I've got to get you to see you're not bright. You're not that smart. You're not that intelligent. And you're certainly not that good. You're not bright enough, smart enough, intelligent enough, or good enough to see Jesus as he really is. You're certainly none of those things to the extent that you could be in God's presence and not be obliterated. And that's going to hurt at first. Maybe it already has. And right now, you're angry. But I have to get you to see that whatever makes you have a sense of self-worth other than God's love in Christ is actually a lie. It will betray you. It will turn on you. And then I've got to get you to see that the worth of God and the worth that He ascribes to you in Christ made visible in your own faith is eternal and life-giving. So this is going to hurt at first. It's going to sting at first. Here's the way I will say it. God's grace is not an equation to solve. It is a mystery to behold. Now the example I gave of this because John keeps doing this. John keeps saying hard things like we have to dig through here. The example I give to you, if you remember this, is, is like hard candy. Right? Like Jolly Ranchers or Werther's Original or a sucker or a jawbreaker or a fireball if you need to repent. Right? Like hard candy. And if you try to bite into it, good luck. You ruined it. In many ways, you won't even begin to enjoy it. It's only something that's enjoyed when you savor it, when you let it rest in your mouth, and it begins to dissolve. The grace of God is not an equation. It's just a mystery to behold. In fact, if it's something that you only say aha to, then you probably just worship your own intellect. But, if it's something that you are confounded by, then what will happen, as we'll see, is you, instead of worshiping yourself, you'll worship God. This is like a hard candy. Now, elsewhere, the Bible calls this like meat, right? And I would pass out meat and steak, but it's expensive and difficult to, to disperse. But like, I, I guarantee, like, go get a piece of hard candy today. Get, get a Jolly Rancher. Get your favorite one. And as you begin to try to bite into it, you'll realize, oh, oh this is what God's grace is like. What we see here is the nature and the result of unbelief. 
You're meant to get to verse 36. When Jesus has said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him. Now remember, there were seven of them, and the biggest, greatest one was raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. And you're meant to kind of come to the table and be like, look, if you saw your friend or your brother or someone else raised from the dead by Jesus, how would you not believe in Jesus? How could you at that point not really worship and love Jesus? Something must be going terribly wrong. And what does John tell us? No, nothing's going wrong. Nothing at all. But instead, we're meant to kind of marvel at this. We're meant to marvel at their unbelief. Why? Because God's grace is not an equation. It's not something you can arrive at. We're not that smart. So even the first thing that we see here, like you marvel that they would not believe, but the theme of stubbornness is a theme throughout the entirety of the Bible. So the experience of marvel at their stubbornness is meant to make us marvel at our own. I know so many of you, I know I have this inclination as well to say like, man, if I got to see Jesus, if I got to, if Jesus would reveal himself to me, then everything would change. Like if Jesus would raise someone from the dead or if Jesus would heal my, my loved one, everything would change. Then I would trust him. But don't miss, that's what people have said since the beginning of the Bible. The very first stories of a couple people who had perfect circumstances, who walked in the presence of God, and yet what? They rebelled against him. It wasn't enough. And so when he quotes Isaiah here, Isaiah is speaking a prophecy against some people who had watched the marvels of God be on display as they were wandering through the wilderness, and yet they regularly rebelled against him. And so you might think, well, if I had been delivered from Pharaoh, if I had walked across a dry, a dry seabed where the Red Sea was walled up on either side of me, if, if I saw the firstborn of everyone around us die, if I saw plagues come, if I, if I had food fall out of the sky that provided for me, if I had a, a pillar of light by night and a pillar of smoke by day, then, then I certainly would trust. And what do we see here? The theme of stubbornness throughout the entirety of the Bible. You're meant to marvel at that kind of stubbornness and marvel at that unkind of unbelief, that kind of unbelief, so that it begins to stir a sense of marveling in your own stubbornness. And you'll be tempted to say, well, if I saw Jesus, then I, I might believe, I might think differently. And what, what does John say? No, that's not how faith works. That's not how faith works. That isn't ultimately what faith is. You see, Unbelief does not equal indecision. Unbelief is the rejection of God and His Word. Most people think that to not believe in Jesus is actually just like to sit on the sidelines and not be able to make a decision. You know what this feels like when you don't really know what to select because you're, you don't have all the information. And so what do you think the solution is? I need more data. I need to know how this is going to turn out. I need to hedge my bets. I need to know what's going to happen. And so the decision you make, ultimately, is simply a result of collecting of information. That's not what faith is we see here. Let me give you an example. We often think that this is just like a decision we make. Certainly, faith leads to decisions. It leads to an exercise of the will. But the will does not precipitate or bring about faith itself. What if I asked you to believe in something, say, like Yetis, abominable snowmen. I don't know what they did to make them such an abomination, but what if I said you need to believe in 
the abominable snowman. What do I have? You need to believe in that. And what you need to do is you need to choose. You just need to make a decision. You need to make a decision. Those things are real. Really happens. They're out there. Even though there's no evidence, even though there's, there's like, we don't see them, they're not in the zoo somewhere, you just need to believe it. What if I said you need to believe in the Loch Ness Monster? You need to, by force of will, I decide today I'm going to believe. How far do you think you would get? How far would you get? And you begin to realize to really believe something isn't an act of the will. It's the experience of reality. When you see it, when you behold it, that's all you need. Faith is simply beholding something. Belief is simply beholding the reality of something. And you can try as hard as you want to believe in the Loch Ness Monster. In fact, you can make as many web pages as you can. To do, if, and maybe if you can convince everybody else that the Loch Ness Monster is real, it'll make you feel like maybe you're not an idiot. You can try as hard as you want to try to begin to believe those things by force of will, but you and I know, down deep, those doubts would never go away. Because you've never seen it. And until you behold it, you'll never believe in it. Friend, the same thing is true we find here of Jesus. Even though they saw the signs, evidently there was something that happened. Verse 40, their eyes were not truly opened to who Jesus was. And so no matter how much they tried to collect more information, which is what I'm sure some of you think you have to do about Jesus or anything else, no matter how hard they would have tried, it still would have not brought about the result for which Jesus was sent. Verse 38 says, so that we would know, like, certainly something's gone wrong. These people didn't believe in Jesus. They saw all the they saw all the miracles. Something must have gone wrong. John says, no, that's not true. Verse, 30, uh, verse 38, so that, these people didn't believe in them, They'd, so that, in order that, the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And what we find is a great mystery. We know that God's grace is not an equation, but it's a mystery here. You're saying that people saw these signs, didn't believe, and that was actually a part of the plan? Wow, that's confusing. Exactly. Hold on to that. Hang on to that. We're going to come back to that. In order that we would know, rather than being discouraged, why won't people believe in Jesus? They've seen these signs. Why didn't they believe? I'm sure the, the disciples and the apostles were like, why haven't people believed? Or there was probably people around saying, if I don't see it for myself, I won't believe. And, and we're probably, at, at, this, at this state, they were probably full of doubts. Like, well, it, he must not be the Messiah. He must not be our hope. He must not be our peace. He must not be all these things if people aren't believing. And what do we have here in encouragement? No, that's exactly how this works. That's exactly how this works. This is the nature of unbelief. This is the nature the result, they don't put their faith in Christ. In fact, had things worked out like they wanted, they would have just put their faith in their faith in Christ. Now hang with me, we do that a lot today. Most people who would call themselves Christians haven't really trusted in Christ, they've trusted in their trust in Christ. 
Most people who would call themselves Christians couldn't say that Jesus has finished something for them, but they could recall a moment where they thought that was a good idea. And the object of their faith faith isn't the empty grave. The object of their faith was a decision they made. So be it. But that's not the case for us as John tells us. And if maybe you think you're trusting in Christ, but you're actually just trusting in your decision to trust Christ, I know it's a weird circular place to be. This is where we live right now. If I said, why do you know? How do you know that you are one in Christ? One of two events will either come to your mind, either an event in your own life or an event in history. And if, if for you, like, hey, man, I know I'm saved because of what happened at church camp, I want to encourage you. I'm, great, I'm, I'm grateful that happened. But here's what I want for you more than anything else. How do you know you're saved? Because of what happened on Calvary. How do you know you're saved? Because of what Christ has done for me. Because one will fade, one will wear out, and one is eternal. One will never fail you. And you'll say, well, this makes no sense to me. He's blinded their eyes and hardened their heart that they would see with their eyes and lest they, or that is like, so that they would not see with their eyes, they would not understand, and they would not be healed. Why would God do that? Why would God allow such a thing to happen? I want you to consider this. It's possible that God hardens their hearts so that we would know that God is the only one who can soften them. Those who rebel against God have been and will be hardened in their own hearts. Rebellion against God reveals the hardness of our own hearts. And we see this intersection of the mysterious responsibility of human beings and the sovereignty of God. Now here's what I've got to take a side note. Deuteronomy 29 says it this way. Because I want to address some of even the, the things coming up into your own mind. Well, so, like, well, so what do you want me to do? And I would argue, nothing. Do nothing. Believe. That's the do. Believe that Jesus has done. Deuteronomy 29 says it this way. These are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant that he had made with them at Horeb. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and and to all his land. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders, right? Sound familiar? Maybe even word for word? What does verse 4 say? But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. So resist the temptation to think that this is some weird New Testament thing. Here's here's one for you. Resist the temptation to think this is some sort of like post-16th century Protestant Reformation thing. Okay? This is right out of the Pentateuch. This nature of belief and unbelief, what do we find here? Is actually that the Lord has not given a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Now for some of you, a couple of responses are coming up. One of them is, you can think of 10 million reasons why the Bible doesn't actually mean what it says here. Right, you can already think of, yeah, I already know this. Well, just, just realize, you're being a good, you're being a very good, like, like post-enlightened Westerner. Good for you. You're killing it there. You're being a very bad biblical Christian. So, like, if you want to love the Enlightenment, great. But in this case, 
there's some, there's some pretty powerful things undermining that, right? I thought I was an autonomous individual. I thought I chose what I would believe and not believe. And what does Deuteronomy say? No, actually, the heart under this submission of God fuels belief. And God alone is the one who gives that heart. The second response you may have, if you're like me, when I first discovered that this is what the Bible says and we simply tremble at it, is that you may be tempted to be full of resentment. I know when I began to read the Bible for myself and I was like, oh shoot, this is different than what I was told. I was just full of like angst. And I was mad at everybody I knew, every Christian I'd ever met. Like, why didn't they tell me this? Why didn't they show me this? Why did they explain this away? And I was like, why why didn't we just like read this and see this for what it is clearly? And so I want to encourage you, don't go there. Be, be, that's, that's what we call is being like caged. When, when you kind of discover something and it's profound and shocking and you think it's a weapon rather than a means of peace. But don't miss this. The, the purpose of this is not to necessarily like harm you. It's to soften you. And the harder that this feels, that God really is sovereign, not, over all, not only over all things, but even over who is his. If that hurts, then realize that's just how hard you are. It's meant to soften you. Right? The New Testament tells us this, that Jesus is a stone. And he'll either be a stone that you'll build on, a cornerstone, or he will be a rock of offense. He will either be a slab of perfect stone that you can build your life on, or he will be a slab of stone upon which you will shatter like a piece of glass. And here's the thing, both of them glorify Christ. (laughs) Both of them glorify Christ as the stone. And so don't marvel at their unbelief. Instead, marvel at your own stubbornness. Now you know this is true, like you see this elsewhere. He's blinded their eyes to display the hardening of their heart. You know what this looks like. We live in an age of the smartphone where all of you except for you really courageous people who I envy, all of you have like a case or a screen protector on your phone. And it makes good sense. You're carrying around like $1,000 in your pocket. You drop that when you're done, right? What are the commercials surrounding those kinds of products? It's a phone with a case or a screen protector, and there's someone, what? With a hammer. And they hit the device. Why would they do that? Are they hitting that phone to break it, to shatter it? No. What are they doing? They're hitting it to demonstrate how hard it is. They're hitting it to say, this is how hard this is. You can hit this phone case with a hammer. You can drop it off a building and you'll still be good. That's how solid, that's how rock solid and how hard this case is. Friend, that's what's going on here. Why would Jesus perform all these miracles for a bunch of people who wouldn't believe? Do you get it? To show just how hard-hearted they are. Don't miss this. In Jesus Christ, we have revealed a couple of things for us. The person and work of Jesus exposes the character of God, but it also exposes the sinful condition of humans. The Bible is like one big cell phone case commercial. Oh, you think they're hard? Watch this. I'm going to deliver them, heal them. Ding, ding, ding. Nope, still hard. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop them into the wilderness. Ding, ding, ding. Nope, not broken. Still hard, not softened, right? I'm going to send them prophets and judges and, and awful things and beautiful things. Ding, ding, ding. Nope, still hard, not softened. Do you get it? The whole Bible, even up to this point, are people who encounter God and are hardened. 
Why? Why would that be the case? So that you would know beyond a shadow of a doubt only God can soften it. Why would God harden? Why would God demonstrate the hardness of a person's heart like we see here? Why would God do it? Here's why. To show that he alone can soften it. You see, if you could soften your own heart, then you should be on the stage and we should worship you. All the songs should be about you. But if you can't, something amazing will happen. Worship. Worship. And when you, as Ephesians tells us, like when, when it's nothing you can boast about, when it's only the grace of God demonstrated through faith, like you can't boast about it. All you can do is boast in Christ. All you can do is marvel in His mercy. All you can do is worship. Why would God allow such a thing to happen? So that we would begin to see that only He can solve it. Why don't people believe? Mysteriously, to show that, God's will is not thwarted by opposition. We saw that in the first half of the chapter, but did you catch that? God's will isn't even thwarted by people's unbelief. God's not sitting up there hoping. Boy, I hope they'll believe. Hope, I hope they'll trust me. Rrr. What? Your unbelief and my unbelief doesn't hurt or help him. And that's beautiful. Because that means he is great. And his glory is great. Look how this plays out. 41 brings us back to this topic of glory. Evidently, the hardening and softening of people's hearts is actually a glory that God reveals. A glory that he wants to share with you. A glory and joy that he wants you to partake in. I know, it's like hard candy. I know, just let your jaws sore right now. I got it. Just hang on to it. Hang on to it. Let it, let it, let it begin to dissolve. Let it begin to digest. Let it begin to be soft. Isaiah said these things, John tells us. Why? Because he, that is Isaiah, saw the glory. He saw Christ's glory in, in chapter 6. That's where he's quoting here from verse 40 and uh, all the way from verse 40. He's, Jesus, uh, or excuse me, like, switched up yet, not yet. The glory of God was beheld by Isaiah and the train of God's robe filled the temple. Just the hem of his garment filled the temple. The glory that he saw there. Nevertheless, verse 42, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Why? For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. You see, the glory, do you remember I told you? Like, if, if this is something you did, then you get the glory. But if it's something that God did, only he gets the glory. As we talked about last week, glory is a discipline. Glory literally means weight. So God is massive. He deserves all the glory. And your deepest fear of being weightless and meaningless and not really mattering is a true and real fear. And yet we see that God's glory is shared with us. His great gravity swallows us and then we become united to Him. But it's a discipline. A, regularly, uh, a regular weighing of God's glory and the glory of other things. Now, I've given this example before. I talked about a car, right? What if I told you that you, you needed $10,000 worth of repairs on your car? What would you do? Get it? Some of you are like, forget that. My car's not even worth $10,000. 
I'm going to go buy a, a 10 times newer car with that, right? But what if you owned, I don't know, like a Duesenberg, right? Like a Ferrari GTB, right? Like, well, what if, yeah, you don't know what these are. These are multi-million dollar cars. These are cars worth millions, millions and millions of dollars, right? What if you had a, a Bugatti Veyron or Chiron, right? This is a multi-million dollar car, right? What if you have like one of the original Shelby Cobra, right, 427 SCs, right? Millions of dollars. And I came to you and I said, you need 10 grand worth of repairs. What would you do then? Of course. Of course. Do you see what happened? The repairs are the same, but what? The glory is greater. The worth is greater. Imagine that you had, let's say, a relative who died and left you with a painting from their attic. And they gave you that painting. And you're like, whatever, this reminds me of my old dead relative. And you hung it on maybe your dining room wall. And a friend came over. And a friend saw that painting and said, oh my, this painting is worth a fortune. It's worth millions. It's worth millions. What would change in your life? What would you ever, you would reorient around that, right? And if someone said, look, look, you're going to have to pay a guy $5,000 to come appraise this thing. Done. Done. You're going to have to pay another guy $20,000 just to come clean this thing, to take care of this thing. And you're going to have to pay someone else to build a special frame, thousands of dollars to display this thing. Oh, by the way, this doesn't belong in your house anymore. This needs to be under security. This needs to be in a museum. You see all of these expenses piling up, but if you have a fortune, a glorious fortune hanging on your wall, they're all chump change. And you'd be happy to invest. Did you get it? Glory is a discipline. Glory is a regular seeing of the worth of something and responding accordingly. Did you catch their glory problem here? They loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They had a glory problem. They had a glory problem. Don't miss that one of the ways that God is glorified is as he softens our hearts, he allows us to behold his greatness such that other things begin to fade. We sing the things of earth, what? Grow strangely dim in the light of his face, his glory, his grace. Like You see him and everything else is not that impressive. And just like a treasure of a car, a treasure of a possession, a treasure of a painting, you begin to invest in it. You begin to protect it. You begin to insure it. Friend, if Jesus has done this, if he has shown you himself, I want to encourage you the response of obedience is to insure it, to invest it, to protect it, to pour everything else into it. Guard it with your life. Don't let anything come between you and the glory that he's shown to you. I know for many of you, You've had your eyes kind of like tweaked at this, right? Like the lights come on in the middle of the night and it burned your eyes and you closed them again. But for some of you whose eyes have been opened to God's glory, that he would love and cherish you, that he would share his glory with you. That just becomes something that's easy to forget. And you've ensured a lot of other less glorious things. But don't miss that real glory leads to real confession and proclamation. I'm so grateful uh, for Mitch and for Jeff today, right? Forsaking the glory of people, being in front of people. No one likes that. I'm not even sure I like it. Yet to forsake the glory, what would people think about them when they see it? They, for, they, was, they forsook that. What? For what? So that you and I would behold Christ. 
Beginning in verse 44, he starts to wrap up. See the glory beheld in God's softening of people. See the glory beheld in comparison to the glory of lesser things. Verse 44, we see this synopsis of Jesus' ministry. In many ways, this is the epilogue. We saw the prologue was chapter 1. John chapter 1, the Word was made flesh. He came to His own, and those of His own did not receive Him. They rejected Him. We see here John telling us, that's, don't be surprised, that's part of it. Not everyone will behold God's glory. Verse 44, and Jesus cried out. He said, look, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Remember what I told you, the person, the work of Jesus exposes the character of God and the sinfulness, the sinful condition of human beings. And he throws in there with his words a threat. He says, whoever sees me sees he, him who sent me. I'm one with the Father, right? We saw this in the last chapters. I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. That's his goal, that you would be softened. And if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge them. For I did not come to, the, to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my word, that person has a judge. What's the judge? The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Don't miss this. The authority is in his declaration of being the Son of Man, the Son of God, the one Messiah, the hope for all of us. Now, I've got to like dig into this just for a moment and kind of do a quick circle before we land this thing. What does he say? I'm not going to judge these people. That's not my goal. My goal isn't to judge people. My goal is to save people. I'm here to save the world. But my words, my words don't go anywhere. He says later, look, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words not pass away. He even make, makes reference to the Old Testament, not a jot or tittle. Those are the, even the smallest marks. None of those things will disappear. These things will last. These words of God are forever, and so we are forever people. Like we, are, we are forever indebted to and shaped by God's words. We, we live and die by this scripture because we know that it speaks what's true and what's right. Now that's important because I hear a lot of people on a regular basis when we talk about Jesus and we talk about him saving us from sin, right? You have to receive that as a critique, right? Like, are you saying I'm a sinner? Yes. Absolutely. Definitely. You're a sinner just like your father, Adam, right? Like this, is, this is your lineage. And regularly people will respond to something like that and say, well, I just feel judged. I feel judged. Notice, he says, I'm not the one judging you. The judgment has already come because what you're saying and doing doesn't align with my words. Let me take you back. I, uh, in college, I, had a, uh, I, had, I, was, I was on scholarship in an honors program, and so I was forced to take honors university-level classes I had no desire to take. Um, I used to love math, and then somewhere in middle school, uh, our math teacher moved, and I had a, a football coach become my math teacher, Right? And he was a football coach, not a math teacher. It was a small school, and they were like, well, he'll do it. And he taught math like he coached, right? Like, if you didn't get it, he just yelled at you. I'm not kidding. You're like, you're like I, I don't understand that. He's like, no, 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 did you not hear me? It's like, oh, I'm, I'm dead serious. This happened. And so the result was nobody learned math. And I taught myself, I had to teach myself algebra and calculus for the next few years, which is a way of saying I didn't know much, okay? Went from being really great at it, and I, I had to like, yes, yes, and I taught the rest of the class, Right? So I get to college, and I have a professor, uh, 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 an advisor, who says, you need to get a math credit. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to take this easy one over here. And he's like, no, you have to take university-level algebra. 
the honors cohort of university-level algebra. I, I was terrified, terrified. And so the professor they brought in that fall, um, his name was Dr. Miller, and Dr. Miller had retired from the math department 10 years before, okay? So he was old 10 years ago, okay? But they had a shortage, yeah. He had a sh- they had a shortage, and so they brought him out of retirement. I and mean, he was old 10 years before, and he came in, and this was a fall course, and he shared with us on the first day, he said, he, he showed us a graphing calculator that was like a part of our course requirement. He said, I only actually got this two weeks ago. He had only had a graphing calculator for two weeks. So we were going to do university-level algebra with pen and paper, man, old-school style. You're not going to be able to get, you're not going to use any, this is old-school style. And so the first exam, I got a 51, 51. That means I, I barely got more than half things right. Here's the thing. I had the second highest grade in the class. My, my test average was 72. 72. And I graduated, I, I, that class, I had the top grade average. 72. I got an A because if he hadn't curved up all the grades, everyone would have flunked it. And you know what I felt towards that man at first? I didn't like him. He was mean. Didn't let us use graphing calculators. And when I looked at that piece of paper, my first inclination was anger towards him. You jerk. I was mad at my advisor. How did I get into this spot? But you know what was really true. He didn't judge my math skills negatively. My math skills judged themselves. I did so poorly on the test, that's what I deserved. Why is that important? Did you see what Jesus says here? Look, if you want to take this all personal, go ahead. But notice, I'm not going to judge you. In fact, I'm going to be the judge who is judged in your place. But the judgment that's on you isn't a personal one. Now, this is important for you in this room. There's a lot of millennials in this room. In a recent Barna study, i got to show you this. I want to show you how hard this is for us to believe, and even how you're probably feeling right now. 40% of millennials in a Barna study, 40% of them responded, they identified as Christians, they identified strongly with this statement. If someone disagrees with you, it means that they are judging you. 40% of millennials who called themselves Christians. 4 out of 10 of you in this room that are millennials, when you see the corrective words of Jesus, how do you feel? You're judging me. Just don't miss that. That will cause you to miss what's being said. Jesus will talk right past you. Don't miss this like it's the words of Jesus. It's the eternality of his words that stand in judgment. It's the words. It's our own disobedience. It's our own rebellion. It's our own stubbornness that separates us from God. In fact, it is Jesus who takes the place of judgment for us. So friend, if you feel that the weight of this, if you feel like if this is hard, just realize this is the hammer cracking down and softening you. It may shatter you at first, but friend, he'll put you back together. If this feels difficult, even if you're like, well, I I can't abide by that. I don't want that. So are you saying that maybe, I don't know, you are too hard-headed to receive it? 
Would you maybe even admit, I'm too hard-hearted to listen to these words? Well, friend, don't miss what Jesus is doing here for us. He's showing us our hardness so that we will begin to feel the weight of God's judgment and then marvel that Jesus had taken it for us. As hard as you and I were and as crushed as we deserve to be, who took the blow? Who was crushed? Who was the one who was the seed that died and went into the ground? It was Jesus. It was Jesus. Don't respond in hardness. Instead, be softened by how good Jesus is by being crushed on our behalf. He's pleading, plead, believe in me, believe in me. I know some of you will say, well, if, if God's the one doing this, if God's the only one that can do this, well, then what, what does it matter what I do? If God's the one who's choosing these things, then what should it matter? Well, God ordains not only the end, but also the means. And God will use whatever is in his hands to bring about what's good for his people and great for his glory. He'll be the gravity that holds us tightly. He's the one who was pierced for our transgression. He's the one who's lifted up in our place. And so even now, if you find yourself asking a really good question like, well, how will I know if God has softened my heart? Stop. Do you know who doesn't ask a question like that? A person with a really hard heart. And so friend, if you're in this room, take it as a hint. God has manufactured and, and executed a a diverse and numerous number of circumstances that has brought you here so that you would hear me say to you, you don't have to be crushed. Jesus was crushed in your place. And if that confounds you, then do the right and honorable thing. Marvel. Worship. And receive with gratitude a gift you and I could never earn on our own. See the glory. See the glory he offers up to us. And even if you say something like, oh, I can do this on my own. I can believe and follow Jesus on my own. That just goes to show you've never actually seen the weight of this and maybe never actually tried to point anyone else to Jesus. This is what we know as the church. Whenever we engage in mission, we see exactly how hard it is and how helpless we are and how glorious God is that we could ever get to celebrate someone like Mitch and Jeff coming to Christ. You want to take credit for that? Go for it. But the rest of us go, how good and gracious is our God. And so what do we do? What does he say? You believe. You confess it. You see God's glory as the greater thing and you turn to it. Today, become a Christian. Check the box. Throw off the fear of man. Realize how small that glory is to the glory that God shares us by being crushed in our place. You'll say, well, I want to do whatever I want. God, let me do whatever I want. God give, me just, God, give me justice. I'll choose God when I'm ready. Did you catch that? The light's fading. Sure, maybe right now you'll think, I want Jesus. But which you wants Jesus? Which you? Which you is choosing Jesus? The one that shows up to a worship service once a week? Or the version of you that chooses sexual sin? That chooses to lie? that chooses to cheat, that chooses to deceive, that chooses to withhold the truth. Which is you? Which choice is really you? Which choice is you? You on your very best moment? Or is the real you the choices you make in your worst moment? Friend, let that begin to soften you to realize He has been crushed in our place. 
And the choice he makes for his glory is for your joy. It's for your safety. It's for your security. And since you didn't earn it, praise God. You can't ruin it. Let's thank God for that. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for your glory made visible even in the time that we've gotten to spend together. Thank you especially for the glory that we see as we see brothers baptized, taking steps into new life. We thank you so much that 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 isn't a glory we could earn for ourselves, that isn't a glory that we could begin to apprehend on our own, but it's simply a glory that we receive as a gift. God, these are hard words. These are hard concepts. These are difficult. Would you begin to encourage us even now? These words aren't hard to harm us, but they are hard to soften us. So if there's some in this room and maybe they wouldn't call themselves a Christian, or maybe they're in this room and they would call what it means to be a Christian simply them doing their best and them on their best and them making the best possible choices, would you begin to soften them now? so that they would see that you took their place, you took the judgment they deserved even on their worst day. Their hope is grounded and fixed in the solid rock. Their peace is secure. And the Father's ability to draw us close, to soften us and make us his own. So for the rest of us, maybe our eyes have been opened to this. Would you begin to broaden our view Allow us to see the scope of your glory, that it would outshine lesser glories, that we would begin even from this moment to invest in ensuring that glory, protecting that glory, reminding one another of that glory. Would you begin to allow us to see that greater glory for what it is, a substitute and a price paid that we could never pay on our own. We thank you for bringing us into this room to be exposed to this glorious thing, even though it's difficult, even though, even though it's tough. It's even beyond my ability to explain with words. Would you begin to open our eyes in faith? Don't give us more information, Lord, but give us faith. Give us a, a clear and beautiful view of the risen Savior on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen.